I didn't mention just now, um, my wife comes from Singapore, and we met as students in Liverpool. And uh, leading up to the time when we met, um, I was reading a lot of Christian biographies, particularly missions biographies, and I began to think that the Lord might be calling me into missions, to be a missionary. And I was very excited about this, and maybe this sort of thing doesn't excite you, but I imagined my future as trekking through some deep jungle or across distant mountains to bring the gospel to a remote people who had never heard the gospel before. That was how I saw my future. Now I know that that's a very romantic view of missions, but buried within that was the beginnings of a a real call. But as time progressed, I began to realise that being a missionary or becoming a missionary is not quite so easy. For one thing, you have to be physically fit. And I was born with a very rare bone condition where some of my joints wore out really fast. And between the age of 19, when I first started to think about missions, to the age of 29, when we had been to China, been to Singapore, and finished our training, and were applying to a missionary society to stay long-term in East Asia, I could barely walk. I couldn't walk more than a couple of hundred yards. My hips were a mess. So what do you do with a call to missions when you're barely able to walk. Now, if you're wondering why I'm okay this morning, it's because I'm partly made of titanium. I set up all the alarms in every airport I go to. But the practical realities of life hit home. Now, God in his grace actually used that situation and turned things around so that we came back to the UK and started working with international students. And our dream came true that we were able to meet people from nations where they had barely heard the gospel and to present to people for the first time the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't through trekking through some deep jungle or across mountains, it was by being here in this country. We all know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19. I'm not going to preach on that this morning. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. I'm going to assume that we're familiar with that verse. But just to say that the last few years have taught me, and I've seen it in other people's lives too, that what determines whether we will obey the Great Commission or not is not can we, but how should we. The Great Commission is not a one size fits all command. It takes a different shape in different people's lives. And when we think of the Great Commission, we need to think of three particular things. First of all, we need to think of the needs. What are the needs of the world around us? Is it the need primarily for the gospel? Is it the need for, uh, for theological education? Do people need to be fed and clothed and educated? And do they need, do they need practical help to go along with our preaching of the gospel? What are the needs? Secondly, what are the opportunities? What opportunities are there out there for us to be able to to meet those needs? For the last 20 years or so, China has opened its doors not to missionaries, but to people going to serve as teachers. There's an opportunity there to go and witness through our lives and through our friendships about the Lord Jesus Christ. Opportunities to meet needs. Thirdly, we need to think about resources. What resources do you and I have for us to be able to take those opportunities and to meet those needs? 
But a reality check here, missions for most of us, for 90% of us here, is something that other people do. It's other people who go overseas. We could not possibly go. Reality for us is, I've got a mortgage to pay. I've got children's education to think of. I've got family to support. I've got elderly relatives to take care of. I have my own health issues. I cannot go. And that's reality. But we need to balance that reality with the other reality of there being millions upon millions of people who are perishing without the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who don't know enough to be able to make a decision to follow Jesus. I have a friend who's completely blind, one of my closest friends. Can't see anything. He went blind when he was 16. You'd imagine, wouldn't you, that being blind was a fairly good reason to think of yourself as exempt from the Great Commission. He doesn't seem to think so. In his spare time, when he's not programming computers, he's uh, working for Tear Fund, going preaching and teaching for Tear Fund, and he's been on short-term missions to Malawi, to India and Siberia, and he's blind doesn't seem to have stopped him. And in our work with Friends International, one of the, the, the most exciting things is seeing people who could not otherwise go overseas because of their health, because of their personal circumstances, perhaps because of their age, and yet they have become missionaries in their living room, through friendship, opening their homes in hospitality to international students, giving people the opportunity to respond to the Gospel. Now if you can have Um, Matthew 25 open in front of you this parable of the talents is a very familiar one it's um, one of a string of parables and stories that Jesus told preparing his disciples for his uh, imminent death resurrection ascension and telling them what they should do with their lives between then and his coming in glory and for us it speaks to us of what do we do with these lives that God has given us between when we are converted, when we come to Christ in faith, and when he comes again, or we go to be with him. And in this particular uh, story, we have this picture of a man entrusting his property, a very wealthy man entrusting his property to his servants while he is away on a long journey. And we think of this parable, normally we think of it as teaching us to use our Talents, our gifts and abilities, whether a lot or a little. And in English, we have got this word talent probably from this story. And a talent to us normally means exactly that, a gift or an ability. However, I think, to be honest with you, that interpretation of the passage is too narrow. Because a talent in Jesus' time was not a gift or an ability, it was a unit of money. I don't know how much, probably quite a lot, about 20 years of a worker's wages. It's very arbitrary, but let's just picture a quarter or a million pounds being the kind of order of magnitude of one talent. So talents were money, not natural gifts and abilities. And actually, the passage states that these talents were given to each of these three people according to his ability. So in other words... They were given resources, money, and opportunities, the chance to invest that money, each according to his talent. 
And so it's probably more helpful when we look at Matthew 25 to look at a talent as representing resources and opportunities. That is money, time, education, possessions, property, situation in life, blessings, as well as those gifts and abilities. I've chosen a few words for us to kind of hang our thinking on. I'm sorry they don't all start with the same letter. But if you're taking notes, you might want to just write these headings down. The first word is investment. Now, I've never bought or sold a share in my life, but I know enough to know that when you buy shares in a company, what you're doing is you're, you're giving money to the company and say, here, take this, use it to build up your business so that we can all share in the profits. I'm trusting you with my money. In this passage, in Matthew 25, the master invests in the, stu- in the servants. And the servants, likewise, invest the money entrusted to them. And God has invested in us. He has invested the life of his son. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And in addition to that, he's given us these lives that we live. And all the money, the time, the career, the relationships, the opportunities, the education, the family, and the gifts and abilities. And he's asking us, I have invested in you. How are you going to invest what I've given you? The second word is faithful. There are two time phrases in this passage. One in verse 16, at once or immediately, and one in verse 19, after a long time. The first two men went out at once, put the money to work. They didn't spend time looking at each other and saying, how come you've got more than me? Their focus was not on each other, their focus was on the task in hand. To be truthful with you, real obedience is that which obeys immediately. But this was no flash in the pan bout of enthusiasm. It was a commitment over a long, indefinite period to be faithful. From the moment that the master left until the moment he returned. This is one of the hints in scripture that Jesus gives that perhaps his return will not be quite so immediate as the disciples first thought. And the disciples then, and we now 2,000 years later, need to live in this tension between the imminence of Christ's return and the plan to be faithful over a long, extended, indefinite period. And so true obedience is that which is both immediately effective and is sustained over a long, unspecified time. The third word is fair. Now, was the master fair or unfair when he gave out these three uh, amounts of money? You might have thought he was unfair, but he wasn't, because the money that he entrusted to the servants wasn't theirs. And in fact, the money that was gained from the money they invested wasn't theirs either. So the money wasn't theirs, 
And the return for the money wasn't theirs, but the reward was. And the the money entrusted to them was different, and the, the return for the money was different, but the reward was exactly the same. If you look at verse 21, his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now let's read verse 23. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Word for word, even in the Greek, it's exactly the same. The same reward. What about the third man? Well, my fourth word is fear. Because he wasn't jealous, like we might think. That was not his problem. His problem was fear. He was afraid. Verse 24 says, Then the man who had received one talent came, Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Basically, he was saying, I knew you were a bit of a tyrant. I knew you were a bit of a hard man, so I played it safe. Now, he had buried the money. And an ancient Palestinian law stated that whoever immediately buries property entrusted to him is no longer liable because he has taken the safest course conceivable. The man who merely binds it up in a cloth is punished if it is lost. He had done the responsible thing. He'd done the safe thing. He'd done the practical thing. And we do exactly the same. We look at what God has given us. And we think that it's not wise to take risks with what God has given us. So we'll do the, pra- the practical thing, the responsible thing, the sensible thing, and we'll hold on to it. I remember when we applied to Friends International, they seemed very pleased to have us, and then we realised that there was no salary. We had to raise our own support. And to go from Singapore, where we were living at the time, to the UK with two small children, without a guaranteed salary, did not seem to be the sensible thing to do. My father was a tax inspector, a very practical, sensible, responsible man, and didn't think it was wise. And yet it was right. Now we have to be careful with this parable. The parables are not allegories. We don't equate everything in the parable to something else. Like um, some people imagine that in uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the donkey represents something and the coins represent something else and the, the inn and the innkeeper represent... Now we don't interpret parables like that. They are stories to, to illustrate one or two main truths. Because if we treat this one like an allegory, then we get into deep water because we would have to say that Jesus is saying that God is a hard man. And he's not saying that. What he's doing is he's choosing an example that his listeners would relate to. There are plenty of kings and rulers and people around just like this, who were a law unto themselves, who were rightly to be feared. 
And listening to this parable, the disciples probably thought, yes, I can understand him being afraid. Probably all, all three of the servants were afraid. But if all three of the servants were afraid, what was the difference between them? The difference was the first two were concerned about serving the master and the third one was thinking about himself. The first two were thinking about serving the master and the third was concerned primarily about himself. This is my checkbook. Dave, right. There we go. Just sign Dave a blank check. He can fill in whatever amount he can. He wants to. We don't sign blank checks. Because when you sign a blank check to somebody, what you're saying is, I give you as much or as little as I have as you want to take. You might be a bit disappointed, by the way. We don't sign blank checks, it's too dangerous. But if I was ever to sign a blank check and give it to somebody, it would have to be on two very strict conditions. The first is, that the person I give this check to has an absolute right to as much or as little as I have. They have a right to go into my bank account and take what they want out of it. The second condition is that the person I give this blank check to has to be entirely trustworthy completely trustworthy and I need to be assured that the person I give this to has my best interests at heart. Sorry Dave. A young man once said to me a couple of years ago that he had signed a blank cheque and given it to God. He had laid everything that he is his time, his career, his money, his future, his talents. And he said, I give God everything. Take as much or as little of me as you require and use me for your glory. Why don't we do that? Why don't you and I sign a blank check and give it to God? The reason is, I think, we're afraid. We're afraid because we just can't conceive of what imaginable things God will have us do if we do that. He'll probably make us do something terrible that will make us utterly miserable. He'll send us to Africa to work with AIDS orphans or send us to some unimaginable swamp. He's going to make me miserable if I do that. But when we say that, when we, when we start putting conditions of what God can or cannot have of our lives, what we're really saying to him is, actually God, I think you're a bit of a tyrant. You're a bit of a hard man. And I'm afraid to invest in you because I dread to think what you'll do with me. I think I'd better just play it safe and hang on to what you've given me. 
Is God such a tyrant? Is he such a hard man? There's one word in verse 21 and 23, repeated, and that is the word happiness. Happiness. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, if you've read anything by John Piper, you'll know what I'm talking about, but I believe that God's desire for us is to be deliriously happy in him. Let me say that again. I believe that God's desire for us is to be deliriously happy in him. David Livingstone, um, famous missionary to Africa in the 1800s, who went through such a great deal of what we would call suffering for the cause of the gospel in that continent. He said, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is it sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? It is emphatically no sacrifice. And time and again, people who have laid their all on the altar and said, Lord, do with me as you wish, have found that God does not want to make them miserable, but God wants to make them deliriously happy in him. In him. And maybe signing, let's be real, let's, maybe signing a blank check and giving it to God just this morning sounds too drastic, too, too radical for us to be able to, to really accept but firstly, let me say, let's look at the cross and ask ourselves, how radical is it compared to the cross? And secondly, the reality is that God is gentle. Gentle. And when we find ourselves hanging tenaciously onto our lives, the Lord very gently peels our fingers off and as we begin to let go of our finances let go of some of our time begin to open our home and be willing to spend time with people who need our friendship and need the gospel God will bless that willingness and make that investment grow now this morning I've not talked much about the needs of the world in mission I'm going to assume that you know that or that that information is easily available. But the question is, do we have the resources to take those opportunities and to meet those needs? In English we have this expression, where there is a will, there is a way. I would like to suggest to you that where there is a willingness, God will show the way. Um, recently, the banking world inadvertently gave us a very good illustration of what investing in this world can mean. And I pity those who have um, had their shares in Northern Rock. It must have seemed such a sure investment. A British bank, come on, this is a British institution, doesn't go bankrupt. It's certainly, their name is The Rock. The Northern Rock, surely it should be safe. And we look at our lives, our careers, our, our, our salaries, uh, all this sort of thing, and that seems tangible to us. That's what we think is sure. But just as the Northern Rock showed, it's actually just crumbling 
sinking sand. There is a rock, though, which is a sure investment. And we would be fools not to invest everything we have in the kingdom of God. But when we do that, when we just allow ourselves, allow our fingers to be prized off our lives and say, yes, Lord, take me, we will have joy in this life and in the life to come and we will have our Father saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness.